I think we ought to welcome death. And I don't mean we ought to get up a load to go tonight, but I think death is a very important part of life. If it weren't for death, life would lose its passion. That was Bishop John Shelby Spong in 2010. He had just published another book with the provocative title, Eternal Life, A New Vision. Bishop Spong died in September 2021 at age 90. Today we'll remember this famous and controversial author, scholar, and commentator with a replay of an interview recorded at St. Peter's Episcopal Church in Morristown, where Spong lectured often. Hi, I'm Kevin Coughlin of MorristownGreen.com. Thanks for tuning in. This episode of the Morristown Green Podcast is brought to you by Morristown Medical Center, named New Jersey's best hospital for four years in a row by U.S. News and World Report. The Right Reverend John Shelby Spong, Bishop of Newark, was not afraid to ask hard questions about faith and religion. He was as likely to quote from science journals as from the Bible. Critical of intolerant televangelists and dogma, he ordained the first English woman and the first openly gay man in the Episcopal Church. We sat down to ask him about the meaning of life and death. Welcome, Bishop Spong. Thank you very much. So let's get right to this. What happens to us when we die? That's a good question. The fact is nobody knows, but we've speculated wildly through the centuries. I mean, to the point where people have a very clear vision that heaven is populated with golden streets and lampstands and that you eat milk and or drink milk and eat honey. Maybe you get some angel food cake on the side. Uh, We've divided the afterlife into two regions, heaven and hell. We then started tinkering around with those regions and developed limbo for pagans, limbo for children, purgatory for for people who aren't quite as bad as other people, a sort of time limit. But nobody knows. Uh, I remember remember going to dinner with a friend of mine who was about 100 years old, and he said, Jack, what are you working on now? And I said, I'm trying to see if I can make a case for life after death to people who live in the 21st century. And he laughed out loud. He said, nobody knows and nobody can find out. Who are you going to interview, he said. Where are you going to go to do your research? Well, those are good questions. What I did in the book was that I found that I couldn't, I can't speculate about what happens. I have some opinions about what happens after you die, but I can't speculate with any reasonableness. But I can look at life, not life after death, but life itself. And then as I poured deeply into life, life became more and more mysterious and more and more interconnected. Uh, And I followed the lines of, basically, of science. I I studied astronomy with a professor at at, uh, Cal Berkeley. 96 lectures with that man. That's a lot of lectures. 96 one-hour lectures. That's about a four-year college course (laughs) on astronomy. And once you, once you begin to embrace the mystery of life, then I think you can begin to talk about the possibilities of life being not as finite as we think it is. And that's the direction I took. And you, you mentioned uh, you know, studying, studying science, and there, there's been a movement in science to try to explain what faith has spent centuries trying to explain. 
Uh, there have been uh, studies at Johns Hopkins and elsewhere using brain imaging technology uh, that might suggest that religious experience, mystical experience, resides in our temporal lobe, that, that we're hardwired somehow, perhaps, for religious belief. Somehow it may have given us some evolutionary advantage to survive the harsh realities of our life. I'm, I'm not sure about that. I, don't, I wouldn't deny that. Now, some of my studies indicated that, if, <clears throat> that the brain actually secretes a substance in a very small minority of people that enables sort of transcendent visions to take place. I, I met with a shaman in the rainforest of the Amazon this past spring, and uh, difficult to communicate with him, but we managed to do it. And he told me that most of, well, just me alone, but he told our group that most of what he does is to go into the forest. He knows which leaves of the forest are hallucinogenic, and so he chooses them. Tobacco, interestingly enough, was one of the three hallucinogenic drugs he used. But this substance that seems to be natural in a very small number of people also seems to be stimulated unnaturally by hallucinogenic drugs so that, that people can sort of break through what might be the blood-brain barrier and perceive a bigger picture. Now, is that a mind trick? Or is that a reality that's beyond the boundaries of, of the average mind? I don't know that anybody can answer that, but it's at least a speculative thing that, that we think about. Religion, to me, is, is a human creation. And I think it comes out of the fact that human beings are the only creatures in, in the entire universe, so far as we know, that have evolved into self-consciousness. And self-consciousness is not easy. The self-conscious person lives in time. Animals seem to perceive time as sort of an eternal present. They don't worry about what went before or what comes after. Now, you can train them like Pavlov did with his dogs. But, but time is perceived very differently. So animals don't know that they're alive, so they don't have to worry about the fact that they're going to die. Human beings do. Human beings live in a, in a trauma of of recognizing that we're finite, we're the only creature that asks questions of purpose and meaning, and, you know, maybe what we're doing is trying to battle against the idea that we are just like animals, which is what Darwin sort of suggested, and that all animals do are they get born, they eat, they grow, they mate, they reproduce, and they die, and this, it's a meaningless cycle. Try to imagine all the sheep that have lived in, in all the world. I'm speaking with uh, Bishop Spong about his new book, Eternal Life, A New Vision. And you, you talk about how, because we have consciousness, we have to grapple with this uh, mortality. That well, it's self-consciousness. Self-consciousness. Animals have consciousness. And I don't think we ought to minimize that. And the boundary between animals and human beings is not near as big as we used to pretend you know, in the, in the Psalms. You know, the psalmist says, Thou hast made us a little lower than the angels. And then Darwin comes along and says, well, maybe you're just a little higher than the apes. That's a very different perspective. But uh, that's where we wrestle. And human beings are the only creature that wrestles with this. And my sense is that if you dig into the human brain, if you dig into to, uh, all of the realities that make up life as we human beings understand it, that we find that we're more deeply connected with something that we might call God than than anybody else, except we know it. The animals don't seem to know it. So that that uh, self-consciousness opens the door, I think, for human beings to participate in timelessness, maybe even in eternity. Of course, your views are are thought-provoking, and they're they're not traditional views. You you grew up in a Christian 
tradition, you really have perhaps tried to debunk many of the traditional tenets of of the faith. Like what? Well, I mean, I always hear people say right, that. I'm not right, really I, sure. Well, what they I mean, mean. You, you you question the the literal interpretation of Acts in the Bible yes. of the life of Jesus. So does every biblical so scholar in the world. That's not unusual. I'm just sure. talking about right. It. But th- these though are are, are um, foundations for many people that that give them comfort. Uh, some might read your works as perhaps throwing a, a wet blanket on the security blanket that re- religion provides. Uh, is that a difficult thing to do? Is that a lonely thing to do? To some degree. But you see, I don't think Christianity is an opiate for the people. I don't think Karl Marx was correct. And when you act as if people need a palliative to get through the day, uh, being human is not easy, Kevin. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that religion feeds on. But I think the task of religion is not to give people peace of mind, but to give them the courage to live in a very anxious world with integrity. And that's a very different thing. When people say things to me like you've debunked traditional aspects, they usually start with the virgin birth. The virgin birth didn't come into the Christian tradition until the ninth decade. That's some 50 to 60 years after the death of Jesus occurred. And it's not in Mark, and it's not in Paul, and it's not in John. It's only in Luke and Matthew. Now, people don't know that because that's not the way we've taught. Even the story of the even the story of the resurrection. I don't think Paul saw the resurrection as the resuscitation of a deceased body, and that's the way most people tend to think. That I think of it. That idea really comes with Luke and his magnified and John, and they are ninth and tenth decade pieces. Now, I think the resurrection's real. But I think the resurrection is not resuscitation of a body that walked out of a grave. Most people have no other image of how to talk about resurrection. But Paul would suggest that that resurrection meant that in in some way the life of Jesus was lifted into the life of God. Now, I don't know what that means, but there were three stories in the Hebrew tradition where that happened. One's a man named Enoch of whom it was said he walked with God and was not, for God took him. One was Moses, who was buried by God alone in the valley of Mount Mount Nebo. And there wasn't another soul around there to see that. And so people began to say, well, maybe he didn't really die. Maybe God just sort of took him into eternity. And the third one is Elijah, who gets to ride up into heaven in a fiery chariot drawn by fiery horses. And we have a lot of stories in religious history about bodily assumptions. The Roman Catholic Church declared that Mary had been bodily assumed into heaven in 1950. It's the last last doctrine that they proclaimed ex cathedra. Uh, There are such stories. And what I think we're trying to say at that point is that the boundary between God and human life may not be as sharp and divided as we think. And maybe we ought to stop thinking about God as an old man in the sky far, far away. Maybe we ought to think about God as part of the consciousness in which we share. Those are the ideas that I think are are abroad in the world today, and and I'm trying to put them together. And I'd like to say I put them together with an absolute conviction uh, that that I'm still very much part of the Christian faith. I'm not a fundamentalist, but the Christian faith is the faith path I walk, and I walk it quite consciously and quite deliberately. Yeah, as I I read your book, the... uh the, the one thing that kept popping into my mind was you seemed to, <laughs> to share a lot in common with John Lennon. I kept hearing the song Imagine in my head. You know, imagine no, there's no heaven and no hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Well, I think that's the secret to life. I think you live for today and go deep enough into today and you touch eternity. I don't believe it's some thing that you anticipate. 
I think we ought to welcome death. And I don't mean we ought to get up a load to go tonight, but I think death is a very important part of life. If it weren't for death, life would lose its passion. You know, if, if and yet it's the unknown, and that's scary to that people. Scary. Well, that's because we're self-conscious, and we have to embrace that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that life is a one-way street, and we know it ends in our own deaths, and we have to anticipate it. No other animal buys life insurance or draws wills. You know, it's only human beings that do that, and it's very difficult to be human. Uh, but I think the more deeply and fully human you become, the more you are in touch with what I believe God is. And that's a different approach. I don't look for God up in the atmosphere. I think that God died with Galileo. I think, I think in all of our lives, we've seen positive effects. I, I think back to my own grandmother, and I know that the stories we just discussed that she believed gave her great comfort in her last days. And yet, as you point out, many of these, these essential parts of our Christian tradition were added years and years after the fact by human beings who are fallible, who had their own agendas. What are we to make of this, and, and how, where should we draw our, our comfort as we face this great unknown? Well, I think you have to draw it from within. I think if it's, if it's an external thing, you've probably created it, and that makes it an opiate, it seems to me, and not a reality. I think if you go deeply enough into life, you realize that we participate in something that's beyond ourselves. Uh, and I could cite a whole lot of things. Uh, take Carl Jung's collective unconscious. That's an incredible concept, that there is a thing called the unconscious that you and I can access today, which means we can access the thoughts of generations long past and that we shape it so that people in generations from now can access our consciousness. Some recent studies done on dreams that the New York Times wrote about maybe six weeks ago reveal that some of the images of dreams today are identical images with with our, our pre-modern, prehistoric ancestors who, who dream about these animals who were natural enemies of Homo sapiens. And those the, the concept of those animals pouncing on us is still part of the dreams of people today. Now, where does it live so that you and I can access it in our in our dreams. I think life is far more mysterious. My great criticism of materialism is not that they've taken away the external God, but they act as if materialism is an end in itself. I think materialism is a doorway that we point toward that which is non-material. In the field of, of subatomic physics, if you go deep enough into subatomic physics, the boundary between the material and the non-material disappears, and a, and a particle and a wave become identical. Uh, that's a rather interesting thing to think about, I think. It sounds to me like you've gone more to the science side than the faith side. Well, let me tell you, let me tell you about that, because I think science is an enemy of traditional religion, but I don't think science is an enemy of understanding the mystery of life. Indeed, I think it's a great ally. It's very hard to believe that God is an external supernatural power who lives above the sky once you embrace Galileo. And once you embrace Hubble's telescope finding, and once you embrace Stephen Hawking's work, uh, because the universe is so large. I mean, there are 200 billion stars in our galaxy alone. Our sun is one of them. And there are some stars in our galaxy that are bigger than the Earth's orbit around the sun, which would include the sun. We're not even the center of our own galaxy. We're about two-thirds out to the edge of our galaxy. Uh, there are between 100 billion and 1 trillion galaxies in this visible universe. And yet, whatever we can find out about anything, the farthest star in the farthest galaxy, 
we now know it's made out of the same stuff that so, your body is made out of. We are very deeply connected. So where does where does God fit into this picture? What is God? Well, I don't think anybody can tell you. And that's, it's also interesting to speculate. I did in part of this book, I went through the history very briefly, I must say, of the way God has been conceptualized in the animistic phase as sort of a, a spirit-filled world, usually lots of different spirits, not one great spirit. We've invented God as we needed him along the way, it seems. When we, when we stopped being hunter-gatherers and began to be agricultural people living in the same area, that's when God became identified with the fertility cults, and that's when Mother Earth became, and the Earth Goddess became part of our worship. When we became tribal, we, we thought of God after the analogy of a tribal chief, and that evolved into the divine right of kings, if you go long enough. But I think that, that looking for God outside of human life is fruitless. Uh, I think you're going to find God in the depths of human life. And to me, that's the turn that we need to make. When, That's a hard turn to make. Uh, the uh, the AARP just did a survey of people over 50, and they found that 73% believe in life after death, and that um, 40% believe there's a physical heaven, and 42% yeah. still believe there's a physical hell. Well, that doesn't surprise me at all. Gallup does the same sort of poll. I think if you had pressed those people, you would discover that they believe in believing in life after death more than they actually believe. I don't see anybody today in the Western world that lives their life because they are eager to get the reward of heaven or fearful of the threat of hell. So there's a disconnect between what we say we believe and the way we live our lives. Even some of the great um, religious people of the day have, when they bump up against their own death, become quite faithless and fearful. And and uh, I think that's revelatory. It's very Religion is very important to people. But I think it's important to people because it's, it's something that gives them a sense of security. And when they doubt it, they suppress their doubts. You know, they might not suppress their doubts about a particular church's doctrines. And if you look at, if you look at the population today, uh, the, church, the church is becoming a minor institution, not a major institution in shaping public thought. If you go back 100, 200 years when, when it was a much more powerful public affair, to be part of a church. It's not today. It's a, we have a pretty secular society. And even in the South, where I grew up, and they talk about the Bible Belt of the South, and people go to church and read the Bible more often, it doesn't seem to affect life. They have as many divorces or more divorces. They have as much drug addiction, as much alcoholism, as much spouse abuse, child abuse. I don't see anything that this external religion actually shapes the life. You're listening to my March 2010 interview with the late Bishop John Shelby Spong. When we come back, we'll hear what he really thought about religion. And now, news from Atlantic Health. Morristown Medical Center, named the number one hospital again in New Jersey for the fourth year in a row by U.S. News and World Report. Setting new standards of care with nationally recognized programs in cardiology and heart surgery, orthopedics, and gynecology, including maternity. Morristown Medical Center, part of Atlantic Health System. Visit AtlanticHealth.org slash Best Hospital. Let me ask you this. Uh, on balance, would you say that organized religion has 
been more of a positive or a negative it's for humankind? A, it's been a mixed blessing. When I grew up in the South, I grew up in an evangelical Episcopal church, but it taught me that segregation was the will of God and quoted the Bible to prove it. It taught me that women were inferior by nature to men and quoted the Bible to prove it. It taught me it was okay to hate other religions and especially the Jews and quoted the Bible to prove it. And it taught me that homosexuals were either mentally sick or morally depraved and quoted the Bible to prove it. I had to work through all of those prejudices and work through the way they use the Bible in order to become a Christian today. I, and yet you write how you met role models that were very positive and affirming in your life that set you yeah. on a, a path that was very different, positive. Very different, yeah. But see, my church and my career, my church has fought the battle of segregation and the church and the Bible lost and segregation's put to an end and it was a political victory. It wasn't a religious victory. Uh, we didn't get rid of slavery until the war forced us to give it up. We didn't get rid of slavery, uh, segregation until the courts forced us to give it up. And then we resisted in the South passionately. The last person to be convicted of a civil rights crime was Edgar Ray Killen, who killed three kids, two Jewish boys and a black kid in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And it was only about five or six years ago they finally convicted him after a bunch of hung juries. And when he, was, uh, when he was convicted, the newspapers recorded that he was a member of the KKK and an ordained Baptist preacher. You see, we've had lots of complicity uh, with, with evil in the Christian church. We, you know, only Christian church has burned people at the stake. We've initiated religious wars. We initiated the Crusades because it didn't like the infidel Muslims. That's not very healthy. Now, we've also done some good things. The Christian faith has been the source of universities, the source of hospitals. But you see, I'm, I agree with that person who said Christianity hasn't, you know, it, it's not wrong. It just hadn't yet been tried. Uh, you see, I think the Christian faith calls on me and you to love ourselves so deeply that we can love other people just as they are. You use the phrase uh, loving wastefully. What do you mean by that? I do. I, uh, well, my analogy, I like, I like that phrase, and people always question it. They question it because most people grew up with a Puritan strain that said, waste not, want not, and waste is sort of bad. What I mean by waste or wasteful love is that you don't stop to count the cost. You don't stop and calculate whether this person is lovable. And the analogy I have in my mind is that uh, if you go down to the basement of some houses, there'll be an old sink down there and have two or three chambers, and you you put on the put the plugs in and you tur- start the water and it fills up the big old sink and then it flows over and it fills up every dirty little crack in the basement and doesn't stop to ask whether that little crack deserves <laughs> to be watered. It just and that's that's the way I love my wife. That's the way people love their children. They don't stop and count the cost. That's what I believe the love of God is all about. And the love of God manifests itself in me by giving me the ability to love others without calculating. And without saying, well, they're not like me, or I'm scared of them, or I don't like people of color, or people whose eyes are slanted a little differently, or people whose sexual orientation is not the norm. It gives me the ability to love people just as they are, which is what we Christians sing about all the time. The view that you just described, it doesn't seem to me that you really need a God in that equation. So what is God? Well, you don't need a God in the sense of an external supernatural being. But you see, the moment, whenever it was, and the dates that I've recently gotten from my scientific advisors are probably no more than 250,000 years ago, which is pretty late in evolutionary history. We crossed the boundary between consciousness and self-consciousness. And we related to that by feeling that we were alone uh, and, and we were frightened. 
and every religion has a doctrine of atonement to get you back to being at one with God, with nature, with whatever. But I think that we had to run that gamut uh, to, to feel alone and to find ways that we can try to overcome our aloneness. But I think that at the, at the core, when we crack the boundary between consciousness and self-consciousness, we also should have recognized that instead of being alone, that we had finally come into communion with that which is ultimately real. So I think of God after the analogy of life and love and consciousness and being, and I think that God is very real. But that, you know, that's not where people think, because people always have an old man up in the sky, no matter how sophisticated, they can perfume that old man in the sky with all sorts of sophisticated theology, but you scratch it, and it's still there. I don't think the old man in the sky is going to be a, a relevant concept to human beings in the future, but I think God is. God is nature, God is a creator, God is a concept, what is God? <laughs> well, you see, I, when you ask the question, you recognize, I can't answer that. Right. What I can do is to tell you how I believe I experience the transcendent. Mm. And, and that's as far as I know how to go. Uh, and to do that, I believe that God is the source of life. And so when I live, I'm in touch with that God, with that source of life. So I worship God by living fully. I believe God's the source of love, so I worship God by loving wastefully. I believe God is the ground of all being, and that's a phrase I borrowed from a German Lutheran theologian named Paul Tillich, who shaped my early life. But if God's the ground of all being, then I worship God by having the courage to be everything that I am capable of being. And the reason Jesus is important to me in that equation is that when I look at his human life, I see the presence of God in him because I see him fully alive and revealing the God, the source of life. I see him totally wastefully loving, revealing the God who is the source of love. I see him having the courage to be everything he can be, whether he's being hailed as a king on Palm Sunday or being crucified on Good Friday. So I see the being of God in him. Um, I mean, whether you're a believer or not, there's no denying the profound impact that Jesus has had on Western civilization for the last 2,000 years. But as you talk about in your book, Jesus was interpreted and reinterpreted long after his earthly existence by so many different people. How do we know who Jesus was? Who, who do you think Jesus was? Well, it's, that's hard. The affirmation, I'm sorry, the affirmation that's made about Jesus, the earliest affirmation is in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and Paul says, God was in Christ. Now, in order to make that make sense, you've got to have a definition of God and a definition of Christ. And that's where the battle has been. Because we thought of God as someone, some supernatural being who lived above the sky. So, it, But the experience was that God was in Christ. Now, the question I ask is, what was the, what was the Christ experience? Well, as you see the story of Jesus refracted through the scriptures... Uh, Jesus becomes one who loves in the face of every abuse of love. Jesus is one who steps across every boundary that separates one human being from another. Uh, maybe that's what the God experience is, that, that we are one, that we are not separate, and that, that we ought to begin to look at this in a very different way. And that Jesus really does appeal to me. Now, in the, in the, in the New Testament itself, they started out, well, if God is in Jesus, how did God get into him? And that's an interesting question. So Mark comes along and says, well, Jesus was a complete human being until he came to his baptism. And then the heavens opened and the Spirit filled him. and He became a God-filled but human life. That's about the year 70. You get to Matthew in the mid-80s. And Matthew says, oh, no, the Holy Spirit was his father. 
and that he was the, the Holy Spirit was the male agent by the Virgin Mary who produced this God-man. So he's being interpreted by, by various people at various That's points that, that were not necessarily his contemporaries even. So That is correct, and not even... What do we have to go on? Well, I think, you, I think you again have the God experience to go on. Now, I might be delusional, and you also got to face that. I believe God is real. And I believe I experience God in life, in love, in being, and I think that's the God I see in Jesus of Nazareth. Could, could you have all those things without having God or Jesus in the picture? You could love, you could well, serve others? Yeah, I think, oh, I don't misunderstand. I don't think that one has to be theologically uh, creedal before one can live a good life. Some of the most noble lives I've seen have been lived by people who were long apart from organized religion in general and Christianity in particular. And I think that, but any time I see a life that can give itself away in love for another person, I think I see the presence of God at work. Now, I'm interpreting that. And I look at, uh, I look at Martin Luther King, Jr. I look at Nelson Mandela. I look at Mahatma Gandhi. These are human beings. I look at the whole understanding of human life, how deeply we admire heroes who give their lives away for the sake of somebody else. You know, somebody who'll dive off the bridge to rescue a drowning person and die in the process is held up as a great hero. There's something about human life that if, you, if you're willing to give it away, it becomes God-filled in our minds. And I think that's part of what we need to look at Jesus. Do you believe in the, the miracles we were told about and the ascension and the resurrection? Uh, are those are those real things as far as you're concerned? Or? I think they're symbols to try to capture the essence of what the experience was. You know, look at the ascension. That's the easiest one. The ascension assumes a three-tiered universe. We haven't lived in a three-tiered universe since Copernicus in the 16th century, at least in terms of the intellectual Possibilities. Carl Sagan, before he died, was a friend of mine. And Carl Sagan, who was a profound atheist, but he was what I call a God-intoxicated atheist. He talked about God all the time. Uh, I've just finished watching his Cosmos series again, and God comes into his language over and over. He came to me. Uh, we were doing a conference together in Washington in 1994. I think it was two years before he died. And he loved to tweak religious people because he thought he could sort of show how silly they were. He came bounding across the room and he said, Jack, uh, have you ever thought of what the ascension of Jesus looks like to an astrophysicist? And I said, no, Carl, I haven't, but I was sure I was going to have to because he was beaming. He said, do you know if Jesus literally ascended into the sky and if he traveled at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, he hasn't yet gotten out of our galaxy? And then he went on to say in his Sagan-esque way, and our galaxy is one of billions and billions and billions of galaxies. I thought he was going to have a religious experience there. But the one thing that the scientists can't explain is the instant before the Big Bang, right? Uh, well, yeah, they, they sort of tried to do that. Uh, the reason we can date the universe at about 13.7 billion years is that we can trace through computer models the, the outward trajectory of the universe and we can turn it back. And if you trace it backwards, it comes back to a single solidarity that about 13.7, maybe to 13.8 billion years ago. Uh, but, but is that the beginning? Uh, scientists aren't sure about that. Maybe we are in an eternal big bang and big crunch. You know, we go out and then gravity won't hold it anymore. We come back and have a big crunch and everything ends. And 
time and space seem to be a part of, of the Big Bang. Uh, time and space are human categories. They're not necessarily physical categories. That's where it begins to get very strange and trying to trying to make sense of the old religious symbols, particularly if you literalize them, is almost impossible in the world that we live in. But if you don't literalize them, if you look at the religious traditions as symbols trying to express a human yearning to be at one with that which is ultimately real, to see our life as not separate from life itself, to see our love as the power that enhances our humanity, to see being as something that's present in all of us, but only human beings are self-conscious of their own being, then you have a very different way to go into the understandings of religious symbols. You're listening to our March 2010 interview with the late Bishop John Jackie Hall's book called Eternal Life, A New Vision. We asked him why he stuck with the church Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell. I guess one question that, that comes up by people within, some people within the Episcopal Church uh, is this. You know, bishops promise to, quote, guard the faith, to, quote, obey Christ. So I, I guess some might ask, why, why do you remain within the church? Why do you remain a bishop? Your views seem to be so outside the traditional uh, yeah. views of the church. Well, why maybe, stay? Maybe the traditional views are wrong. As a matter of fact, in my career as a bishop in the Episcopal Church, every cause that I fought for has been accomplished. My church now treats women equally. That was a huge battle. Uh, my church is now engaged in dialogue with Jews instead of with conversion activities. My church now has two gay bishops who have been elected by uh, the dioceses that they are privileged to serve. Uh, and even the Bible, and trying to show that the Bible is a valued book without ever literalizing its text, all of those things are commonplace today. In fact, I think I'm probably a majority in my church and not a minority. Uh, the minority were the people, we had some bishops who couldn't deal with the fact that we ordained women, so they left. And we had some bishops who couldn't deal with the fact that we now treat homosexuals as if they're human beings and not uh, distorted human beings. They're just, un they're just different. You know, I, I regard homosexuality as no more different than being left-handed or blue-eyed or white-skinned. That's just one more of the variations in human life. And you don't persecute anybody or prosecute anybody for what they are. And the, you know, the ability to probe the truth of our faith in the light of modern knowledge is nothing except the apologetic task that's been taken up by everybody from Augustine in the 4th century to Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. And I think we've got to do it again in the 21st century. In an age where uh, science uh, and technology are explaining so many, uh, so many aspects of existence, what is the role of the Bible now? Which would well, it be? Well, I, the Bible is a book I treasure, and I read it every day of my life, and I've studied it for a lifetime. I don't regard it as the literal word of God at all. And I think anybody, anybody says that they've never read it. I mean, the Bible says that if you talk back to your parents and are willfully disobedient, you are to be put to death. How many people want to take that literally? Wouldn't be anybody left. Now, the Bible says if you have a, if you commit adultery, you should be put to death. If you worship a false god, you should be put to death. Uh, the Bible treats women as as second class citizens, even the property of of males. Now, the tenth commandment says you shall not covet your wife, your neighbor's wife, nor his ox, which is a very interesting 
thing. And, of course, the Bible is quoted regularly to suggest that homosexuals are subhuman beings and maybe even ought to be subject to the death penalty, as Uganda has just tried to put into law. Uh, you know, nobody that that is knowledgeable about the Bible would treat the Bible as the literal word of God. And that's all propaganda. But... But what is the Bible? The Bible is the source book of a, of a long and faithful journey of a people through history trying to make sense out of life and of God. The biggest problem with the Bible is that we closed it. We acted as if God hadn't thought a new thought since 135 when Second Peter, which appears to be the last book of the New Testament to be put into the New Testament. Uh, I think that's the tragedy. The Bible is, is a book that has only male voices. There's not a woman's voice in it. There's no female author in it. Uh, the Bible is a book that has no person of color, although most of the Semites were browner than white supremacist Americans would imagine. You know, most and all of the all of the books of the Bible are written by Semitic people. Uh, Luke alone may have been a Gentile, but the rest of them were all Jewish people. So I think it's a it's a very valuable book, but it's a very limited book in that it sort of closes the revelation of God off in the first century. Would you go to a doctor that practiced medicine out of a medical textbook that stopped in the first century? I don't think so. I don't think Jerry Falwell, who's a colleague of mine at one point in my life, but you know, Jerry Falwell, if he had an epileptic child, would not take his child to a doctor who would treat that child by saying, come out of him, which is the way Jesus is supposed to have treated epileptics. That's what you've got to put together. Anytime you write a book, you bind it with time and space. And any, this book that I've written, a uh, hundred years from now, I'll be using concepts in that book that the world no longer uses because our understanding of reality will have changed dramatically in a hundred years. And a hundred years ago, we didn't know what computers were. Uh, we didn't know how to communicate technologically a hundred years ago. The world keeps exploding, and you can't take a religious artifact that closed. The Bible was written between about 1000 BCE and about 135 AD or CE. You can't take a book and close it in time and then treat it literally forever because it simply will not stand the test of time. Medicine doesn't, geography doesn't, spiritual life doesn't. And to me, what we Christians have done is to make an idol out of the Bible. And in the process, I think we've killed its, uh, its power to, to redeem and to enlighten. And, of course, uh, them's fighting words to some people within, uh, within the religious community. That doesn't, that doesn't it, mean that's wrong. You right. know, just the fact that it's fighting words. You know, We've also burned a lot of people at the stake because they didn't want to say the creeds. And I think those are things that we ought to be championing the right of people to think outside the boxes of our religious formulas. Let me cite one response that goes back a few years to some of your writings from uh, Bishop Rowan Williams. Uh, yes, I, know him. I yeah. know him well. He basically says that uh, your 12 theses, which talk about many of these uh, concepts we've been discussing. Uh, he says, the implication of the theses is that the sort of questions that might be asked by a bright 20th century sixth former, it's a high schooler, I think, yep. would have been unintelligible or devastating for Augustine, Rahner, or Teresa of Avila. Avila. Avila, excuse me. Uh, the fact is that significant numbers of those who turn to Christian faith as educated adults find the doctrinal and spiritual tradition, which Bishop, Bishop Spong treats so dismissively a remarkably large room to live in. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sorry Rowan said that. I know Rowan well, and I think he's, a, I think he's a, a good human being. I don't think he's in touch with this world. His, 
his own spirituality is rooted in, in a, what I'd call the Anglo-Catholic wing of the Episcopal Church, which is quite authoritarian. And I think he's a weak leader. I think he's a very inept Archbishop of Canterbury. But that's beside the point. Uh, I think he's he has uh, com- confused the experience of God with the articulation of that experience. I think the experience of God is real. And I think it's a similar experience that Augustine had, that Teresa of Avila had, and a lot of other people had. But when any one of those people puts it into the language of their day, they put it into concepts that aren't believable. Uh, you know, there is no there is no God up above the sky that's going to send the hurricane on uh, on New Orleans or cause an earthquake to shake Chile. I mean, Chile or or Haiti, as Pat Robertson said. That's really primitive thinking. And that when Pat Robertson said that Chile got the, I mean, uh, Haiti got the earthquake because they had made a pact with the devil in the 19th century and threw the French out. You know, the only people paid any attention to that were Jay Leno and, and David Letterman, and Jimmy Kimmel, and late-night comedy. They just roared with that, and the audiences roared with it. That's not viable stuff. And so so much of what we have called traditional Christianity is trying to put the experience of God into the frame of reference of 14th century or 16th century or 20th century or even 21st century. Anything that I do right now to try to make my God experience be articulate to people in the 21st century, it's not going to last for 100 years. You've got to do it over and over again. The experience, I think, is real. The articulation of the experience is always time-bound and time-warped. And we have this propaganda in the Christian church that our creeds or our Bibles or our, our doctrines or our dogmas are sort of eternal. That's just ridiculous. The truth that we're trying to articulate might be eternal, but the way we articulate it can never be eternal. You can't even use a particular language without being subjective. And Desmond Tutu said to me one time that you don't understand how prejudiced English is until you're a black man trying to speak it. And then you have to say something like, I was tickled pink. There's no way Desmond could ever be tickled pink. It's a white language. And it's also a male-dominant language. It's hard to write in English and be inclusive. You have to be convoluted in your sentences because the assumption of the English language is that to be human is to be white and male. That's just prejudice. That's ignorance. That's not what it means to be human. But we articulate our doctrines and our dogmas within that framework. And, and in terms of Christianity, we've, we articulated most of our doctrine in the fourth century. And we really did believe that God was just above the sky. And so we could tell the story of the ascension and we could mean it literally. We could also tell the story of how God sent manna from heaven to the starving Israelites. I mean, the images that God dumped over baskets of heavenly bread called manna from the sky. It rained down on the Egyptians. Well, where's this place where God's going to do this? And we wanted to build a tower in the in the early part of Genesis. We wanted to build a tower so the human beings could be with God and could communicate with God, the Tower of Babel. That makes no sense in our world. Jesus clearly thought that epilepsy was caused by was a mental disease, and mental and mental not a mental disease but a demon possession. He thought mental sicknesses were demon possession, so he would cure by banishing the demons. Jesus wouldn't do that if he lived today. He might it with hypnosis, the power of suggestion, perhaps. No, well, that'd be an interesting way to make sense out of that. But uh, you know, deaf muteness. They thought the devil had tied your tongue. Well, that has to do with being deaf. They've never heard a sound. That doesn't make any sense. 
uh, not in our world today. There was a time when we treated sickness with sacrifices, and now we treat it with antibiotics and with chemotherapy and with radiation because you have a very different understanding of what causes sickness. Sickness is not God's punishment. Hurricanes are not God's punishment. Earthquakes, tsunamis are not God's punishment. In a pre-modern world, we thought all of those things were the punishment of God. And I don't believe you, I don't believe you can sell that to a modern audience. And so what we do in the Christian faith is that we sort of ignore those things. Even, even sermons on Easter, and I used to hear a lot of them. You probably gave a lot of them. I gave a lot of them, but they bounce around. The sermons bounce around. They don't want to come right out and say, resurrection doesn't mean resuscitation of a dead body. That's not what resurrection means. When Paul says, Christ being raised from the dead never dies again, death has no more dominion over him. What does that mean? If you resuscitate a body from the grave, don't you still have to die again? Don't you suppose old Lazarus had to die again when he came out of the grave alive, if that story is accurate? And I don't think it's historic at all. But, you know, if we think resurrection means raising Jesus from death back into the life of this world, then presumably he's got to die again. And that's why we had to develop a story called the Ascension to get him out of this world, to be with God, who is eternal. Well, it's, it's not, not pleasant to contemplate, perhaps, but when your time comes, what happens? Well, I will die. And? Uh, that's it? No, out? I don't believe so. And that, that's what I tried to say in the book without drawing pictures, because I don't think you can draw pictures. But I believe that if you live deeply enough, you become aware that you're part of something which is eternal, which is beyond all of your boundaries. And to me, that's what it is. And you find that out by living fully, by loving wastefully, and by being all that you can be. People it almost sounds like a no regrets kind of a philosophy, like live for today as fully as you can, embrace that, enjoy that, and then you won't be so worried about leaving it. I think that's a piece of it, but I also think it's more more than that. I uh, I love living, you know, don't misunderstand. And, and if, if I were to die tomorrow, I don't believe I'd have any regrets because I've had an absolutely incredible life. So it's not as if I regret that it's coming to an end. But I think that that in the course of my life, I've been able to live deeply enough so that I touch something which is beyond my boundaries. I think I've been interrelated enough with other people so that I can't separate who I am from who they are. I know that my wife has helped to create the person I am so that if I transcend the boundaries of death, she has to transcend the boundaries of death too because she helped me to become who I am and I hope I helped her to become who she is. And I see, I see life as deeply interdependent and interrelated and I see us as part of something which is eternal and I, I feel very confident in that. So the result of that is I pray, prepare for my death whenever it comes by living today, living as deeply and fully and richly, trying to create life and not death in all of my relationships and celebrating the fact that, uh, that God is real and that this is what I believe, this is the way I believe I worship God by, by living in the life of God and loving with the love of God and having the courage to be in terms of the being of God and stop playing the game of the, of the supernatural father figure up in the sky who basically keeps human beings childlike and dependent and, and uh, I don't think growing up, I don't think we need to be born again as the church says, I just think we need to grow up and accept the fact that we are part of the mystery of life and we're part of the mystery of God. As I sit across this table from you right now, you certainly appear to be a very healthy and vigorous 79-year-old man. I know that you jog four miles a day, you travel 
many thousands of miles to give talks and lectures all over the place, and yet you say in Eternal Life, A New Vision, which I think is what, your 23rd, 24th book? Something like that. that. That this will be your last book. Somehow I find that hard to believe. <laughs> I find it hard to believe, too. I've just signed a contract with Harper for two more books. Uh, well, where can you go from here? You've already mapped out Eternal Life. Well, that's right. It's, in, in some sense, that book was the, was the culmination of a theological journey. But uh, in the course of writing that book, I came to a new understanding of the fourth gospel that I want to pursue. I don't know that I've got the time to pursue it because I think to master the material I'd need to master to write a significant book on the fourth gospel may take four years. Uh, When you're 79, I'm not quite. I don't turn 79 for another three months. But when you're 78 or 79, you don't do long-range planning for four years from now. But I study for the sake of the study, whether it ever comes into another book. And I've got the kind of contract with Harper that that I don't activate it. They have committed to publish if I activate the contract. So I will activate the contract when I think the book is in a publishable shape. And I simply write him a letter and say, uh, I've now got this book, so I think it's worthwhile, and and, uh, issue the contract. And they do. And it's a very nice working arrangement. If I don't, I have no obligation to do it. But, you know, the contract is signed. It's on my desk right this minute. September 12, 2021, at his home in Richmond, Virginia. Our condolences to Bishop Spong's family and friends. It was a privilege to speak with him back in 2010. This special episode of the Morristown Green Podcast was brought to you by Morristown Medical Center, ranked New Jersey's best hospital for four straight years by U.S. News and World Report. Our thanks to them and to Domenico Randazzo for his original music, Check him out at domenicosounds.com. And thank you for listening. You can find the Morristown Green podcast at morristowngreen.com or subscribe on Google Podcasts. For morristowngreen.com, this is Kevin Coughlin. See you next time.